Everybody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Pro Football Hall of Famer and former Buffalo Bill Andre Reed. You're listening to Nate and the Fellas on Circle the Wagons podcast on Buffalo Rumbling Podcast Network. Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Go Bills. Yeah. 2022. We here. Welcome to the Circling the Wagons podcast, a podcast discussing the Bills all year round with interviews, news, recaps, and insightful fan discussion. Here's your host and lifelong Bills fan, Nate. What is up, Bills Mafia, my people? Welcome to another episode of Circling the Wagons, a slightly above average Bills podcast for above average Bills fan, a member of the Buffalo Rumblings Podcast Network. I'm your host, Nate. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We have a special guest. We have Anthony Prohaska from Cover One's Disguise Coverage, the film room. Uh, you catch him on Twitter, pro underscore underscore ant. And uh, just a great interview. Lots of things to discuss. We're going to talk about surprises, disappointments in training camp thus far. We're going to talk about Anthony's obsession with 12 personnel. And after he explains it in depth, you're going to understand why 12 personnel is going to be very, very good for the Buffalo Bills in 2023 with Dalton Kincaid. Uh, We talk about the Bills' offensive line and some struggles there. We talk about... Things that the Bills can do schematically on offense as Ken Dorsey, for Ken Dorsey as offensive coordinator that he could do this year to really play to the Bills' strengths and take another step in his growth as an offensive coordinator. And then we talk about defensive coordinator-wise, what Anthony would do differently from what Leslie Frazier has done in the past. A really fun conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Um, just a reminder that this episode is brought to you by the Twinspire Sportsbook at DeLago. If you are in the western New York or central New York area, head down Route 90, go down the thruway, get off at Route 41 in Waterloo to the best casino in all of New York. That is the DeLago Resort and Casino, where every moment is a winning moment. So without further ado, Anthony Prasca from Cover One. Hey Bills Mafia, welcome to another episode of Circling the Wagons, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I am your host Nate, thank you guys so much for joining us. We have a special edition with a special guest for this particular episode pertaining to training camp. We're going to discuss a lot of things, surprises, disappointments, slot receiver, 12 personnel, everything and anything. And I'm joined by the host of Cover One's Disguise Coverage and one of the co-hosts of Cover One's Film Room that you can find on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. He is a film buff. He is a salary capologist and always always has an equal amount of blueberries per episode. I'd like to welcome back Anthony Prohaska to the Circling the Wagons podcast. Anthony, it is so good to talk to you again, man. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me back. I had a blast uh, last time I was on, so I was pumped when you reached out again. And I love love the intro, and I love how you connected with the blueberries, and I love it even more because 
I would imagine there's probably a decent amount of people who have never heard of me or listened to my show, and they're like, what the hell is the blueberries? What does that have to do with anything? Well, well, they're going to have to listen to find out. That's what I'd say. Exactly. The people that don't, they're going to have to find out. They're going to have to listen. Exactly. <laughs> no, okay. but it, it's so cool because you actually just went on Fernando's podcast, Leading the Charge on the Buffalo Rumblings podcast. That was super good. I'd absolutely recommend um, anyone who hasn't listened to it, but I'm not going to ask the same questions because Fernando, I was kind of mad because Fernando asked some really good questions. I'm like, man, like I can't ask that now because he just got asked that question. And what's funny even more so is I'm almost positive because I know he lives in, um, I believe it's Brazil, um, mm-hmm. and he speaks Portuguese, which I'm pretty sure that's his primary language. I would have to imagine mm-hmm. he speaks better English than I do sometimes. Like he's he's so well, uh, he communicates so well. He really just, is, yeah. He's really good. But um, that was super good. So I'd absolutely recommend everyone listen to that. But but first, Anthony, I want to ask you about um, training camp in general. Like, so you've been paying attention you've come to rochester you've seen the the red and blue uh, scrimmage game um what are some of the biggest surprises so far and it could be position player just general scheme i mean wh- what is what are some of the biggest surprises that you've had uh, as takeaways so far from mm-hmm. training camp oh that's a good question i think when you phrase it with like surprises so for me that's purely something like I wasn't expecting coming in. Um, I'll start with Dalton Kincaid, which I don't think is like too revelatory for anyone. I just wasn't expecting him to hit the ground running in the form that he has into camp. And we'll see what happens come preseason and the regular season when, you know, there's live bullets and, and everything is for real and it's not just practicing camp. But man, just his athleticism, the the phrase that I like to use for Dalton Kincaid is his fluid technicality. You just see how smooth and athletic he is with everything, but he's also technical and precise with his movements, whether it's his route running, whether it's him extending and using his large catch radius to bring a ball in. And just the way he does that and then tucks it, and his gait doesn't change. His stride doesn't change. Just his ability to... You know, and, and he did this at Utah, but his ability already to leverage space and leverage defenders and know, okay, this defender is in trail technique on me and he's on this hip, so let me give him this little move to the outside and then break inside on this square in to clear, and now I've got six, seven yards of separation. Like His ability to win against multiple coverages and, and, and process and find space, I, I'm truly very like impressed. And again, he, I think he's come as advertised, if not even better. I was impressed with his tape at Utah. I did not think there would be any chance that he would be available to the Bills at the end of the first round. And man, just, yeah, the level at which he's been operating at has, has surprised me in a very, very, very good way. Um, I think also within that too, in another positive way, Stefan Diggs, um, who's dominated literally every single day. And I'm going to continue to shout this from the mountaintops on my show, on any appearance that I make. Just because I think, obviously, with everything that happened to the offseason, whether it was you know him yelling at Allen after the Bengals game or him like kind of walking out of the locker room, having to be brought back after the Bengals game, missing the first day of mandatory minicamp, yada, yada, I think some of you know it, it, everything in, in football and especially things where, where passion is involved for fans, it's very much like, what have you done for me lately? And the most recent thing that has come out about you positively or negatively is usually what people associate with you. And there's a lot more negative than positive this offseason with Stefan Diggs and we know every year how much he he works, how much he grinds. He's a true craftsman at the wide receiver position. Like he hones his craft from a technical perspective. And just every day him at camp, he's a dude who already gives like a 10 out of 10 when it comes to effort. He's at like a 15 out of 10 out of on every single rep. He is dialed in. He is laser focused. Every rep he's going as if it's his last rep ever, whether it's individual or team, and he's winning and beating, whether it's Tredavious White, whether it's Taron Johnson, whether it's Kyrie Elam, whether it's Dane Jackson, whoever lines up 
against Stefan Diggs is in the crosshairs and is going to get damaged. And he's just winning left and right. He just seems so focused, so dialed in, so laser, you know, focused and determined. Um, and I don't know if it has anything to do with this off season, but I want to continue to bang that drum because I think it would have been easy for a lot of people to kind of grab the low hanging fruit and assume like, well, we'll see how he comes into camp. And no, it's been the exact opposite. He's been all business and he's been crushing it rep after rep after rep. That's that's really good to hear. You know, I sometimes I wonder, and you and we'll never know what's causing that. But if it if sometimes you know, like it's like a family, right? Like your team is like your family, like your family. You know that you know as well as I do. Like you love your family, but you get into disagreements, you get into arguments. I mean, I believe you're married, right? So like am, you, yeah. you you know how it's like with your wife. Like <laughs> you're, it's 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 easy. It's easy to get in arguments with the people you care the most about, but sometimes. You know, after you walk away, maybe you take a day away or a few days away or whatever, like, you know, to think about it and it comes back and it puts things in perspective. So as much mm-hmm. as we don't like those those moments of uh, it just it doesn't feel good at the time, you know, you're 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 upset, you're angry, you're sad or whatever. And then you get to it and it kind of helps focus you. I wonder if that's part of it. Now, we'll never know, of course, but yeah. Um, it just kind of feels like it's it's leading towards that direction because I can understand. I, mean, I think we all felt Diggs's frustration at the end of the mm-hmm. season, this past season. But that's so good to hear that from you, especially that that you've seen that from him and that he's. Uh, people are always wondering, like, is he going to trail off? He's about to turn mm-hmm. thirty, you know. And from all accounts, from your account, from Proans account, mm-hmm. not so far. Um, no, yeah, he's been absolutely crushing it. And I also like your point too about like the family piece. Like, I, I think it's you know, you often fight the hardest or the most intensely with the people that you're closest with or like that you love the most. And I think it's just a product of, you know, whether it's because you care for them or they care for you or because you're in close proximity all the time. And that's an excellent point too. And, but usually when you've gotten those fights with family, when the dust settles, you know, you squash it and square it away and everything's okay. And I think exactly to your point, it's nice to see how he's come out of this. Um, and I wish I got covered more by people because I guarantee if he took one rep off, everybody would be chomping at the bit to be like, well, Diggs took a rep off. He's probably really upset still. This is not good. But instead, he's been crushing every single thing, and it's crickets, and it's not getting any coverage. And not that I'm some massive Stefan Diggs advocate, but I just believe in, like Batman, I believe in truth and justice. And I think he deserves uh, uh, just a, a lot of kudos and credit for, again, it's he's just taken it to another level that I didn't even think existed. Like, cause he's already going a hundred miles an hour, a hundred percent of the time he found a way to crank it up to like 110, 115. And it's, it's awesome to see. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we, we talked about biggest surprises. What has been in your opinion, some of the biggest disappointments so far in training camp, whether it's like I said, like players, personnel, packaging, whatever reps, you know, players not getting the reps that they, or, or not going up the depth mm-hmm. chart, like you thought or whatever. I think, and this isn't too completely disappointing. I would have liked, I would have liked there to be more of a clear cut answer at corner two by by this time. But I didn't necessarily think there would be, and so this isn't a disappointment from like, well, I expected A and we got B. It just would have been nice if there was some semblance of um, an answer. But again, you could you could play on the other side of that and say, well, you know, Elam and Benford and Dane Jackson are all showing well in different capacities on different days, and so they're making it hard for the coaching staff to pick a corner. So um, you can play that from a, a perspective. I'd also throw the linebacker into the conversation too. I would love for there to be an answer at that linebacker spot. And Bobby Babich said it yesterday. You know, they're looking for an answer sooner rather than later. Um, but again, they're letting that competition play out, which 
is understandable for both corner and linebacker. I don't want any rash decisions being made. I don't want anybody jumping and naming a guy for the sake of jumping and naming a guy just so you can, you know, tick that box. There's a process and a methodology to it. So I appreciate the way they're going through, but for my peace of mind, and I think for any fans peace of mind too, like you would, it would be awesome to know already like, man, you know, Timmy came in and has crushed it so much that they're like, boom, it's Timmy's job. Because the longer it goes on, then you start to think, okay, is it because multiple guys are playing really well or is it because all guys are playing kind of meh and they can't figure out who's going to go into that spot? So I wish the dust had settled a little bit more on those two spots, although we have kind of narrowed things down a little bit more, especially at linebacker with Dodson and Bernard kind of, you know, being mentioned as uh, being ahead of the rest of the pack at linebacker. So I would have liked that a little bit more. Um, Individual disappointments, I don't want to keep harping on it too much, but there's still that mercurial nature to Spencer Brown, um, which I was really hoping that he had started to mitigate a little bit. Again, he's got the high highs, which are really fun, but he's got some of the lowest lows that you'll see. And first day I was at camp, um, they, they were doing individual. It was just pass rush drills and pass protection, offensive line versus D-line. And his first rep, he goes up against Greg Rousseau, and it is textbook. Rousseau tries to beat him around the arc. Spencer Brown meets him there, establishes first touch, gets his hand placement perfect right in the center of Rousseau's chest, stays with him, uses his athleticism, shuffles his feet. It was perfect. And I lo- Eric Turner was there with me. I looked at him and I was like, whoa. And we were like, nice. Literally the next rep, Boogie Basham burns him around the arc and beats him in about a quarter of a second and Brown barely gets a hand on him. And I was like, okay, cool. That's where we are still. Um, and it so that that's a little bit disappointing, especially with... I didn't think his mercurial play last year was due to the injury, but I I definitely thought that the injury hampered and hindered him from becoming like what he could have been. So there was a part of me that was like, you know what? Maybe that injury goes away. He raises that floor a little bit more because that's it. I don't need Spencer Brown to be an all pro right tackle. I just need him to be an average to above average. Stop playing, you know, on a scale of one to 10, stop flashing like a seven and an eight. And then on the next play, you're a one or a two. Just consistently be a six. That's it. Or a five. That's it. That's it. That's all you need to do. And if you want to still have those upside, you know, splashes, cool. That's it. But just raise the floor and reduce that roller coaster that you are. And that seems, you know, to not be happening. He still seems to be a bit um, of that roller coaster type of guy. But I will say he has improved overall. But that mercurial nature and pass protection is still there. And then staying with tackle, it's concerning because if Spencer Brown is not the guy, Shell doesn't look like he's the guy. And Questenberry, I don't think, was really ever going to be the guy with the mileage on the tires. So the tackle position overall worries me um especially after you know the 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 scrimmage on friday the second team tackle shell and questenberry got worked by epinesa and even basham to a degree Shaq lawson at times they struggled in pass protection they struggled with the run um and so that the tackle position as a whole concerns me especially on a team again where you've upgraded the weaponry on offense you have josh allen you have a decent amount of stability from left tackle to right guard, depending on if Osiris Torrance beats out Ryan Bates at right guard. And then there's more question marks if it's Torrance, but you know, I think right tackle has the potential to be kind of a glaring issue or spot on this team. And then if anything happens to Brown or Dawkins, it becomes kind of like a red flag scenario based on the te- the depth that they have at the tackle position. That's scary. That's a scary thought. We, we actually did a, a an episode where, you know, we were talking about the Diggs drama and we're like, well, the only reason why it's even drama is, well, first off, it's off season and there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and to your point earlier, like nobody's talking about how great Stefan Diggs is doing in camp because everyone's going through camp right now. Nobody was, mm-hmm. there was no news before, 
But now then we were like, okay, well, what's the third? Well, who would be next on that list? Would it be Von Miller? Would it be? And then we kind of came up with just consensus wise, like Deion Dawkins. Cause if Deion Dawkins is gone, like you don't want Spencer Brown moving over to left tackle and you don't feel good enough about Brandon, like Spencer Brown. It would, it would be Questenberry. Questenberry right now has been working as the, as the second team left tackle and Shell has been working as the second team right tackle. So if Dawkins goes down, Questenberry is your starting left tackle is what, what it seems like right now. Okay. That just scared me. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, not great. And that's, not even, and that's not a knock against like David Questenberry's got a bunch of miles on the tires. He's battled through injuries. He came back from cancer. Like, I don't think, I don't think any team should be in the spot where they have to hang their hat on David Questenberry. Like, I think he's fine for depth and a rotational piece and a good dude in the room, but he, he probably shouldn't be your second string left tackle on a team. Like it's fine if he's the third string kind of swing guy and you need him in a pinch, but yeah, like if Dawkins goes down, it looks like he's next man up at left tackle. And I just keep playing him at right tackle. Granted, right tackle is different than left, but he was at right tackle when Bryce Huff beat him around the arc and got Allen on the elbow. And, you know, granted, Questenberry, he don't, played through, uh, I forget what game it was last year, where he was banged up as hell and just gutted through. Was it the Jets game or the could. Dolphins game? I can't remember. Yeah, I yeah. can't remember either. Or maybe... I don't know. I mean, I thought it was a prime time. It doesn't matter, but he like dude grinds and he's a tremendous leader and a tremendous dude. He's just not in the position to like offer you the stability that he once could have. And yeah, it can get scary real quick at the, at the tackle spots. But again, especially if Dawkins goes down, that means you got Brown on one side and Questenberry or God knows what on the other. And that's a, that's a scary thought when your team is led by Josh Allen and you need to protect him. Yeah. I went on Dan Mitchell's podcast before the draft and we did a mock draft together. And I think I selected, it was either, it must have been the first round. I selected Anton Harrison with the, for the right tackle oh, from, from Oklahoma. Yeah, as as the, I was like, you know what? I saw that as like a big need. Like, man, we can protect Josh Allen. You know, we'll give him more. Like, that's that's was my thought and logic. Whether he's a great player or not, I don't know. But like, that was my thought. It was like, and he's just like really right tackle. He's like, that's kind of early. I'm like, I'm not really convinced with that. If if you were to mock draft any player, any position to the Buffalo Bills right now with what they have on their roster. And you could pick a player in the first round for any would right tackle be the position that you would upgrade or would it be like something else that we, we haven't even discussed? No, it would absolutely be right tackle. Maybe depending, depending on what draft I'm in or like what my scenario is, like if I could get a linebacker, I would, that would be like secondary um, for me, but yeah, it would hundred percent be right tackle. I, Again, my, my th- even if like if Spencer Brown is healthy and he's the guy, and this has been my contention all off season, like because because so many people were very combative with me with Spencer Brown with being like, no, like he was he wasn't healthy last year, that's why he wasn't healthy last year. But my thought was like, okay, what does he look like when he was healthy? It not great, like no, and I don't think you, he should have looked great. We all know. You know, uh, played eight man football in high school, and then he goes to Northern Iowa, which isn't exactly like a football powerhouse. And then he's not playing during the COVID year. Like he was super green, super raw. He had to learn how to play tackle in the NFL once he was drafted. He was just a high ceiling, toolsy, traitsy, you know, athletic size combination kind of guy. He got thrust into a starting job earlier than he should have. So I wasn't expecting him to, you know, look tremendous as a rookie. But this is a player who was very much on a learning curve and is still on a learning curve. And so the thought process for people being like, no, it was just because he was hurt. And once he's healthy, he'll be good. And I was just like, there's no, there's no proof of that. Like, it's not like he was hurt last year and you were like, yeah, but the other years he's been an all pro candidate. So once he does that, we're good. It's like, no, you, the year before when he wasn't hurt, you still had no idea what he was going to be. And then he gets hurt last year and you still have no idea. So the expectation that, well, once he comes into year three, he's really going to stabilize. You have no idea. Now, does that mean he can't? Absolutely not. But 
I think if you're putting your eggs into his basket, it's more of a hope based and a projection based than it is like, I've seen it. I believe in it. And I just think that's a big ask and a big projection given how important that position is to any football team and the quality that they have at all these other positions and the championship aspirations that they have for the team. Yeah. And it's not evidence-based. It's just based on projection. Like you said, they're looking at, they're looking at his RAS score. I guarantee that's what they're looking at. They're like RAS score and the fact that he's injured and whatever other excuses that Brandon Mm -hmm. Bean and McDermott have come up with for that. And they're just hanging on to that. But yeah. And you look at a couple clips of him demolishing dudes in the run and you're like, no, he can do it. He can do it. And you know what? And and interesting, like that'd be like equating your success this year, like drafting a rookie in the first round being like, man, this guy is definitely going to hit. It's like the draft is a crapshoot. No matter how great of an evaluator you are, nobody hits on a hundred percent of their picks. Like people don't even hit on, I don't even, I don't know. Like if 30% is probably a good hit rate come draft time, it's probably baseball status where if you're batting 300, like you're amazing. It's hard to hit. There's a reason prospects don't pan out from the first round to the seventh round to UDFAs. Like there's a reason guys like Adam Thielen don't get drafted and all of a sudden become great wide receivers. And there's a reason guys like John Ross get taken in the first round and don't pan out at all. Like it's a very inexact science because it's all based on projection and evaluation. And that with that comes human error, both on the evaluator side, but also with the person that you're evaluating. Like there's a multitude of reasons why prospects never hit the ceilings or projections that they are projected to hit. And so just, it's basically like looking at a draft pick like that. And you wouldn't think like, well, they drafted this guy in the first round. He's automatically going to be good. Like, no, because it's a projection. And it's the same thing with Spencer Brown. But I feel like people aren't looking at it like that. Instead, they're just, for whatever reason, yeah, hanging their head on that RAS score. And the fact that he's got some really fun, you know, run blocks where he's just demolishing dudes. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe because he drank that beer that time after they scored or the popcorn or whatever it was. So like, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's but but it's worrisome. So I I have to ask you this because you do watch the film. You do break it down. um, And I've talked to just a couple of other people that also do that as well. And they are on the same exact, you know, the people that are arguing against you probably aren't watching the film. I don't watch the film. Mm-hmm. So I, so I, I would normally be in that group if I didn't believe someone like you, but when you see that, what is his issue? Is it mental? It's not physical. It can't be physical. The guy's a mountain. Mm-hmm. So is it, is it technique? Is it mental? Is it a combination? What, what do you see? Well, last year, again, like the injury definitely played a role in in what he was able to do and what he wasn't able to do. Um, But I think a majority of it is technical. You know, sometimes he's just too far out in front of his feet. Sometimes he's overextending himself with his punches. Sometimes his hand placement is improper and he's, you know, off center, he's off kilter, he's getting a punch in and it's not really establishing leverage or disrupting momentum from who he's trying to punch against. Sometimes his feet aren't in sync with his hands, Um, the angle of his drops at times. Um, again, it's just a, all, it, it's all a variety of things that come with the territory of not playing the position that long and having that many reps at it. Like there's a certain level of time on task that you need. Granted, there are certain guys who just line up at it. Like, you know, Jordan Mailata for, uh, the Eagles who was green to the position and, never played football really before. And then a year or two in is just all of a sudden like showing so much promise and become like an all pro left tackle. But he also has one of the best offensive line coaches in football over there in Philadelphia. So there's that variable as well. Um, But yeah, yeah. Again, I think the majority of it is technique based and just him not having enough time on task to consistently apply what he's learned and be able to know when to use what and when to holster things or when to fire this gun um, and kind of just go back and forth. Because he, again, he struggles in a variety of ways. It's not like, well, he always struggles with speed rushers or he always struggles with power. It's a, it's a variety 
of things. And that usually speaks to, you know, the lack of experience and the lack of technique and being able to properly apply what you've learned. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So moving on from Spencer Brown, although this is a very interesting conversation. I love, I love talking, uh, uh, protection for Josh Allen. I want to ask about the slot wide receiver role, um, because it hasn't been brought up a lot in what I've been reading. Of course, I know a lot of media personnel's their personalities that can't necessarily write and say exactly who they've seen at the slot. Um, from what I understand from what I've, from talking to folks, it sounds like Deontay Hardy has the role. Is that what you saw in your, you know, practice observations? There's been a decent amount, especially if you're taking the scrimmage into account. Um, I think there's been a decent mix and rotation between Shakir Hardy and Sherfield. I will say when Hardy's in there, it seems like there's been more manufactured touches for him, like plays that are like he's in there and where like the play is designed to go to him in some way, shape or form. Um, but I, I think it's a, it's a legitimate competition at this point. I actually, you know, depending on what day you've gone to at camp or how the scrimmage started out, depending on what your, you know, sample size is, you know, Shakir has been getting the most reps and then Sherfield has been getting the most reps and then Hardy's in that mix as well. But again, he's getting design touches. So that kind of throws a wrench, you know, maybe he's not in there for as many snaps, but when he is, he's being used. Um, also, what's going to gum up the works. We know traditionally Sean McDermott, if he has somebody that's his primary returner. He doesn't really like to use them a ton in the offense. So if Hardy's going to be the returner, which he has so far, he's been kick return one and punt return one. Does that limit his snap share on offense? And maybe he is just in there for designed or manufactured touches. So maybe he's not going to get that snap share again, but that doesn't matter. Maybe he's only in there for, you know, 15 snaps a game, but if he gets the ball on five of those 15 versus Shakir being in there for 35 and he only gets the ball on three of those 35, Again, it's a different usage rate and by design. Um, but I think this is a competition that isn't really getting talked about a lot, but it's it's a, from a fun perspective. Like all three of these guys have kind of like st- stuck their claim um, and played well. Shakir had a really nice touchdown in the scrimmage. So does Sherfield. Sherfield keeps making plays day after day, whether in camp or the scrimmage. Um, he's also the best run blocker as that kind of power slot piece, and he offers you some functionality in the run game as a plus blocker. So I, I don't think anybody has a claim to the spot right now fully. Um, I think it's legitimately wide open, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, and they've used each guy differently and different days have yielded different results. Well, I just kind of hope that when the season comes along, maybe they continue that. I mean, depending on who yeah. they're playing, depending. I mean, that'd be ideal. Could be very from, matchup specific. Yeah, because yeah, each guy has a different skill set. So maybe this week is a Shakir week. This next week is a is a Hardy week. The next two weeks are a Sherfield week. Then it's a Hardy week again. It really could depend just because they all have different dynamics to their skill sets. It's different sizes and frames, which allow you to press different buttons, pull different levers, and so on and so forth. And I won't go into it because you described it so well with Fernando and then on disguise coverage about like the line linebacker, the middle linebacker position, cornerback too, like how each one is different, but not necessarily better than the other, just different, different strengths, different. So there's a lot of availability there, maybe between matchup and and who they could be playing. But you brought up a really good uh, point. You've been doing it several different episodes about 12 personnel and why it's better or why you like that personnel grouping. And uh, for those that don't know, it's one running back, two tight ends. Bill's really never had two tight ends that they could do that with. But you mentioned you praised Dalton Kincaid at the beginning of this episode. Um, They can actually run that personnel. They only ran that personnel, I want to say, 9% of the time last season. Um, So... I I have the numbers off the top of my head. I can, or not off the top of my head, but I can pull them from notes. Yeah, and so it would be an uptick to see, you know, that grouping even 
you know, much more so, which we're kind of projecting. Can you explain mm -hmm. to the listeners, for those that haven't heard, why you like 12 personnel specifically and what it enables this offense to do that they haven't been able to do before? Sure. So, and this is something I've been speaking to for years and years. And I, I think 12 personnel is an ultimate like dictation tool for an offense to the defense. You can really force the defense's hand and force them into certain matchups that are advantageous for your offense. And to put the, put the ceiling of 12 personnel into perspective, think back to, especially if you're a Bills fan, um, this should be pretty easy to go back and think about. Think back to what the um, Gronk and Hernandez Patriots were and just how you had two tight ends who could function as blockers and function as receivers and just what you can do with a group like that. And, um, oh, to your point last year, so the Bills were in 12 personnel 6% of the time last year. Um, but some of that is wonky because they did use, some sites will classify the 12 purely as tight ends, but the Bills would use 12 personnel looks with Reggie Gilliam as that tight end. But if a site is designating him as a fullback, it's going to come in as 21 personnel so it can get wonky they were in 21 personnel 17 percent of the time wow. which was the sixth most in the league but 12 personnel six percent of the time um which was 31st in the league so again there is some muddiness depending on how the site how any site will classify reggie gilliam because he was used significantly but um from a pure tight end perspective yeah they weren't throwing out tommy sweeney and dawson knox a ton and quentin morris and dawson knox a ton and a lot of that is tied to the skill set piece and what, Dal what dalton kincaid offers you is his ability with Dawson Knox, you have two players who are capable as blockers in the run game and then as receivers in the pass game. And I, I want to mention that to lead into this quick piece. Dalton Kincaid is not a plus run blocker, but he's not deficient. He's not a vulnerability. He's not a liability. I don't want him out there blocking Miles Garrett and trying to, you know, base block him or necessarily even wash him down. But he has a good sense of urgency when he blocks. He tries, which may sound ridiculous, but that really is like half the battle when it comes to blocking is just your desire to actually block. He can dig out safeties. He can block on nickel corners. He can crack down on linebackers. Like he's more of a, a an escorter or a shepherd or kind of a guy who will impede or obstruct players. Um, but he tries and he can play with leverage. He just needs some work on the technique pieces. So I think a lot of people think because he's such a good receiving tight end, that means he's not going to be a good run blocker and he can't function in that world. And that's not true. So to tie that in with the 12 personnel piece, when you have two tight ends who can block and function as receivers and who are legitimate threats as receivers, it allows you to get to more of the offensive menu without having to turn the page. So if you're just think if you're the Bills right now, if we're in 12 personnel, and so that's two tight ends, two receivers, and a running back. So it's Stephon Diggs, Gabe Davis, Dalton Kincaid, Dawson Knox, and James Cook. You can be in a traditional 12 personnel look where you've got your five offensive linemen, and say you've got Kincaid on, you know, to the left of Deion Dawkins, and Knox is to the right of Spencer Brown. You've got a seven-man surface. You can run out of that formation. You can get to any run look you want. You want to run zone. You want to run gap. You want to run weak side. You want to run strong side. You can do whatever. You can stay in that look and you can shift Dalton Kincaid or Dawson Knox so that they're hipped off of one another and create kind of an unbalanced look. Or you can stay in that personnel grouping and go gun and have Josh Allen drop out from under center and go in a two-by-two two with Dalton Kincaid in the slot and Knox in the slot or Diggs in the slot and Kincaid in the slot, like whatever you want to do. And you can even go further and motion James Cook out. And now you're in a full spread three-by-two or a four-by-one, um, or you can go three-by-one or four-strong. There's a multitude of personnel usages that you have with 12 personnel, and it's because you can when you have 
players with that type of versatility and their skill set, you can do so much with it. And there's not a tell. If you're in 12 with a true versatile tight end grouping like the Bills have right now, defenses can't be like, well, they're going to run it. Well, they're going to pass it. And because you don't know, you have to decide how you want to match it. Because if the t- if the Bills have two tight ends, majority of teams now, they're using nickel. So cool. Do you have a nickel corner that is big enough and strong enough and physical enough to match with Knox or Kincaid in the run game and for them to fit the run? Are they big and strong and physical enough to match with them if they go out into the route distribution? Or are they too small? Okay, you need to bring in a bigger body. You need to bring in a third linebacker or a bigger safety or a big nickel. Cool. Does that third linebacker or does that big nickel, do they now have the speed and the athleticism to stay with Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid? You're starting to play with those personnel advantages and mismatches. And then based on motion and certain alignments, you can isolate those matchups and force a team's hand because you also have Stefan Diggs. So teams are going to want to double digs. And if they're like, oh no, we're, we're vulnerable to Kincaid with that matchup inside. We got to, you know, shade over Kincaid. Cool. Are you going to, do you have a corner who can match with Stefan Diggs one-on-one? Then you add in the run game piece. Teams like to play two high coverages in today's NFL, especially against the Bills. But if you've got this personnel grouping that can run the ball and you're getting light boxes or seven-man boxes and you've got a seven-man surface, you have the numbers advantage, you have the gap advantage, all of a sudden you could potentially be churning out five to six yards of carry or even more. And now does that defense go, crap, we're losing in the run game. Now we got to bring a safety down. Cool. Now they're in a single high look, which the Bills kill. Now you have the opportunity to go play action with some crossers or take some deep shots and attack the seam, which Dalton Kincaid does really well. Not to mention if you're in a single high look, you have more one-on-ones on the outside. Is that safety cheating to Stephon Diggs' side? No. Then it's more of a one-on-one, and now you got Diggs in a one-on-one. Is he cheating to Stephon Diggs' side? Yeah, he is. Cool. Gabe Davis kills dudes vertically. Now you can look to Gabe Davis, let alone if you want to again, get to more things underneath or in the intermediate or the run game. There's a mul- and there's a multitude of things I haven't even touched on here, but the long, to put the long story short is when you have a personnel package, like the 12 personnel grouping, the bills have with the versatility that their tight ends have. It, it was what I said before. It allows you to access more of the menu without having to turn the page. And that's because you can take that personnel grouping and be in traditional 12 personnel looks. You can be in that personnel grouping and run a lot of the same 11 personnel stuff that the Bills have over the past several years. Because Dalton Kincaid, though he's a much different player than Cole Beasley, he can leverage that space and run those option routes out of the slot and attack leverage and attack man and attack zone. So just because you're in 12 personnel doesn't mean you have to be in a heavy look or a run look. You can be in spread. You can be in a condensed look. And then if you add shifts and motions and play action and misdirection, again, you can get to so much of the menu. If you want to run, you know, weak zone, you don't have to, you know, sub out and change your personnel grouping. You can just stay in what you have. And then if you add up tempo and no huddle, it's just, oh, the bind that you can put defenses into. I'm very excited about it, uh, as you can clearly tell. And uh, and if if it works, it really has the advantage to be, again, be a true dictation piece. Look what the Chiefs did last year with 12 and 13 personnel. Granted, some of those numbers are skewed because Kelsey counts as a tight end, but they use him as like an X and they'll put him out by himself. But a lot of teams go into those heavier personnel looks. Look what the 49ers have done for years with Kittle and check. Granted, that's 21 personnel, but what they'll do with those heavier looks, because again, defenses get forced into the bind of, well, they got check and Kittle on the field. They're going to run the ball. We have to put in a you know another linebacker or a safety. And then Shanahan's like, cool, we're going to kill you with play action. Or cool, we're going to just kill you with the pass because you're built to stop the run. And if you're leaving a nickel, cool. 
your nickel can't match up against Kyle Juszczyk. We're going to kill you in the run. Eagles have done the same thing. Like a lot of these offenses have just been using this personnel package for years and the Bills kind of wading into this water, which I think they wanted to last year with OJ Howard and in the waters that Ken Dorsey is very familiar with based on his time in Carolina, where they went to the Super Bowl with Greg Olson and Ed Dixon running a lot of 12 personnel. It's something that has the opportunity to be, again, a true dictation piece for the offense and allow them to just constantly keep defenses on the back foot and making them play reactionary. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I'm, I, if Bills fans aren't excited hearing that, I don't know what's going to get you excited <laughs> about this next season because you got me excited. I mean, they could literally stay in that formation for like the entire drive and run the the breadth of their entire playbook almost mm-hmm. minus you know minus maybe a few plays where they need a little bit more that they won't get from Knox or Kincaid but mm-hmm. I mean that's that's exciting that is really exciting to be able to dictate because I was just listening to um, Eric Wood talk on Centered on Wood podcast with Sal Capaccio and they were mentioning like how the Dolphins were really good at taking advantage of Taron Johnson because he's a little bit smaller so when they saw that he was in a, a nickel you know which he always is like they would try to uh, run the ball a little bit more towards the side because he's a little bit smaller maybe they run towards and they try to take advantage from that personal it's like imagine if the bills could actually dictate that mm-hmm. as well oh you want to bring in uh you know your third linebacker instead thinking that we're going to run the ball okay well we'll just run the seam you know we'll dalton kincaid is going to be any linebacker in the league almost right so um anyway so death yeah, i'm exactly. excited i'm excited you got me we could end the podcast right here i'd be happy right. <laughs> um, i felt bad I, I talked so long on it but there's just so there's just so much to it that again it's it's really 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 exciting and as soon as they took kincaid it's because again, you can line him up anywhere. You want to line him up in a wide receiver alignment? Cool. You want to use him as a tight end? Cool. And because he can do so much, that means the defense has to figure out how they want to cover him and what personnel that they choose and whatever personnel they choose. If they want to go nickel, attack him with the run. If they want to go heavy, attack him with the pass. Or even if they stay in nickel, you can still attack him in the pass because their nickel has to be big enough to handle Dalton Kincaid. And usually that's a hard thing to do. With how athletic and big he is, usually if you're fast enough to stick with a dude like that, you probably don't have the size as a nickel corner. And if you have the size and the frame, you probably don't have the speed. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. That's. I was really happy when they picked him and everything that you've mentioned and that I've read. You know, also, I mean, it just gets me more and more excited for what he could do. I mean, if, so we talked about them doing it. I think you said 7%, 12 personnel this past year. I believe that is 7 8%, whatever, 6%. It was a low percentage. Six, six, if yeah, you were to, like, take a guess. Now, they ran... 11 personnel, like 72% of the time, 72% of the time. I think most fans think, well, obviously you're going to go 12 personnel, 72% of the time. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be more of a, more of, you know, you're going to go towards that 70, but I'm guessing like if I had to guess 40 to 45%, just because it's a lot more, but it's definitely not to the range of like, you know, they're not ready for that yet. At least in Dalton and Cade's rookie year, if you had to just take a why just take a wag at it, you know, 12%, Per, 12 personnel percentage wise, you know, probably not 72%. Where would you put it? Well, so again, looking at it last year, they were in 21 personnel, 17% of the time, 12 personnel, 6%. So that was 23% right there. I would kind of set the baseline at around 25 to 30%. Um, and then you go from there based on how Kincaid's doing, like how is he functioning with live bullets as a receiver and as a pass catcher? How is he functioning as a blocker? Um, how does that piece shake out? If everybody stays healthy and things go to plan, I think 25 to 30% is probably around the baseline, but I think you could see as high as around 35 to 40%, depending on what goes on. But I think that sweet spot really is kind of, I'd say about 28 to 33%, somewhere in that range. Um, I think the Chiefs last year were 
28% when it came to, yep, 28% for 12 personnel, which was the third most in the league. So if you're hitting a 30% 12 personnel usage rate, like that's going to be towards tops in the league. So I think that's a pretty safe uh, kind of over under to look at. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you you were mentioning James Cook being back there is what we would guess, which it sounds like he's had a great camp. Sounds like he's doing well. One of his big knocks uh, this past season, he was a rookie. You know, he didn't have a ton of experience. It was pass blocking, and he mm-hmm. wasn't rated very high at all through the league. If you look at running backs and pass blocking grades through PFF advanced statistics. Uh, do you think that's something that he can pick up that season? Or if if he doesn't, if he's not able to pick it up maybe this year, like – I mean, where does that leave us? Because I would think like Naeem Hines would have been like that guy in the third down role to protect Josh Allen. Now you don't, mm-hmm. and you can't use James Cook as a pass catching back because you need someone to block potentially. And you don't want Damian Harris out there, Latavius Murray. I mean, those guys just aren't necessarily mm-hmm. as good. They're not as big, you know, pass catching threats as James Cook is. I mean, what would you do in that, in that situation? It's tough. Um, we'll start with him as a pass protector. I, I think, I think he's still a work in progress at this point. Pass protection is, for majority of running backs coming out of college now, it's something that they all have to work at. This isn't just like a James Cook thing. Like, just with how college ball is played nowadays, it's just the pass protection piece as a running back isn't something that is usually a plus piece for running backs coming out of college. So it's something that they all have to work at. And then you take the size and the frame perspective of James Cook into account. And that's where a lot of it stems from. Like, I don't think his technique is always awful. I don't think his reads are always bad. There's a good amount of time where he's in the right place at the right time, and it's just like he's just not the biggest dude, and he's going to kind of get railroaded a little bit. Um, and then there are those times, again, when if if his technique and form isn't there because he is on the smaller side, he's going to get railroaded even further. Like He has to be perfect with his reads, his timing, and his technique in order to really be an effective pass protector because, again, he's not the biggest dude. Like If you're a bigger body there – you can afford to be off a little bit because you're thicker, you're bigger, you can kind of impede 
blitzers a little more um, or rushers a little bit more. He doesn't have that to his game. So I think he's still a work in progress. And I think it's an important work in progress piece. It's something I talked about a ton last year with him coming out of Georgia because he has so much value as a pass catcher and as a runner. But if he isn't able to function as a pass protector, there are things that defenses can do to force him to stay in the backfield. Like with the with the looks that they send at the line of scrimmage, with the pressure looks, whether they blitz or don't, they can account for him by making him have to stay in. Um, and if you don't, you consistently want to send him out or you want to spread him out and go full spread. That can work as well, but then you're consistently like relying on your offensive line, knowing you may have to go hot more, knowing you may have to go quicker, knowing where you're more vulnerable. It just, it, it doesn't, reduces value tremendously, but it does hinder a little bit of how much you can dictate to the defense and it allows them to kind of force your hand a little bit more, not to the point where it makes you want to scrap everything and you're, you know, toothless out there, but it does give the defense some options to put you in a bind knowing that you've got a guy out there who is vulnerable in a certain perspective. And if you can attack that vulnerability, it gives you the advantage on the defensive end. So as of right now, um, I, I still think it's a work in progress. I think it's an area of his game that, I think honestly will be a work in progress for a while. You know, he's going into his second year and a lot of it is just frame and size related to him. Um, you know, it's hard to be that fast and that quick and then also be big at the same time. Um, so he's got to be really on point with his technique and all of that. And that takes time um, given, you know, the offense that he came from in college and what was asked of him there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, you know, Ken Dorsey in his second season. You know, um, I think Bills fans would agree, like, there's a lot to be excited for. Then there was kind of hit a lull. There was some red zone issues. Um, Okay, pretend you're Ken Dorsey right now. Don't predict what he will do, but what you would do if you were Ken Dorsey in his second year. What would you do to improve this offense? What would you change schematically or anything like that? I mean, you already talked about motion, stuff like that, personnel packages. I mean, what would you do differently than than Ken Dorsey has done in his first season? Uh, I'm running the ball. A bunch. Um, I know that's kind of a death sentence for a lot of people given today's NFL and you have Josh Allen as your quarterback. And I'm not saying come out here and be 50 50 or 60 40 or anything like that. But the Bills had one of the better run games in the NFL last year. And football is a very cyclical thing. You know, there's the, the pendulum swings in favor of the defense, and then the pendulum gets taken back in the other area by the offense. And where we are right now with the pendulum is defenses, you know, saw what offenses were doing. And what offenses were doing was attacking with outside zone and creating explosives in the pass game and specifically destroying cover three. They were running crossers and overs and attacking the seams and just really beating defenses up. So defense is countered by going with the two high coverage structures that we see now and then going with light boxes and different alignments up front with the idea of kind of bogging down offenses when they go outside zone, allowing defenders from the back end to rally and close and then limiting explosives on the back end. And so a natural you know, swing for the offense is we're going to go with heavier personnel and, or we're going to run the ball at you. You want to go too high coverages and light boxes. Cool. That means you only have six or seven at most defenders in the box. We're going to run the ball right at you and we're going to attack you, let alone add in the other piece of some personnel pieces over the past really 10 years or so, I think interior defensive linemen became less run defenders and more pass rushers. You started to see more guys in the 305, 310 range with the idea of them penetrating and getting upfield and getting to the quarterback than being guys that were there to kind of plug the middle or stop the run. So as a result, a lot of defensive interiors got lighter on the inside. So if Connor McGovern wins the job, you got a big people mover type of mauler at right guard. That gives you even more incentive 
to run the ball against a lot of these fronts and a lot of these interiors that you're going to see. So one, I'm running the ball more. I'm establishing the run early and often, and it'll be very based on the opponent you have. This week, it might be a zone week, and it might be outside or mid-zone. Next week, it might be more of a gap week, and we'll see more pin and pull, or maybe we see more downhill runs, and it's more inside zone and duo and all these things. Or ISO, it's a Damian Harris week, maybe, because we want more physicality and more punch or more popper and more Latavius Murray. Um, and a lot of this, too, again, will be dependent on who wins the right guard job, because you're going to run different schemes based on if Torrance is the guy or Bates is the guy, because they have different skill sets, and therefore you have to lean into different pieces with them. So one, I am... Um, I'm leaning into that run piece more, which I also think helps Josh Allen because he's tremendous with play action as most quarterbacks are. And if you establish that run early, you allow him to go play action. He's got great hand usage on play action. He will fool defenders and make him make them think that he handed the ball off. And if you add some boots to it, you can really create a lot of explosives off of the run game. I think that's a piece that people don't see. Like you hear run the ball and it's like, Oh, great. So we get like five or six yards of pop. Cool. That's awesome. One, I think you could get more than five or six yards of pop, but two, If you get five or six yards of pop consistently, defenses cheat, defenses have to honor that, and then you go play action, and then you hit them for 25 yards, or you hit them for 15 and create some run after catch, and you attack them that way. You can push verticality and push intermediate attacking based off of the run game setup that you have, especially with how that pairs with, uh, full circle here, 12 personnel. Oh, shock. What a shock. (laughs) So I'm establishing that run early and often if I am Ken Dorsey. And also what I want to see, I'd like to see more easy buttons built in for Josh Allen, whether it's matchups individually one-on-one, whether it's, you know, kind of full field reads where everything on each side connects rather than, you know, the left side is one read, the right side is another. Um, I think at times there was too much that was put on the shoulders of Josh Allen, kind of just, you know, being a unicorn and Dorsey was like, Hey, we got a unicorn, just go be a unicorn out there. Um, And then I think that also ties into another piece that I have with Dorsey and Allen. I think towards the end of the year last year, There was a lot of downfield shots from Allen. I think some of it was also due to his elbow and how comfortable he was. I don't think he was comfortable throwing in the intermediate and throwing bullets and lasers. I think it was less stress on the elbow for him to kind of throw it angularly and go downfield. But there were a lot of routes where I noticed Ken Dorsey receiving a ton of criticism from fans with being like, oh, of course Allen went deep because Dorsey's only calling deep shots. Like, that wasn't happening. I feel like people think that all these deep shots were just everybody was running verticals and Allen only had the vertical to take, and that wasn't happening. There were other options underneath. Josh Allen wasn't choosing to take those. So I think kind of reining him in a little bit more with more designed concepts and more designed easy buttons to allow him to get into a rhythm early, build some comfortability, not make him think that he has to play hero ball or he has to go for the throat early and often. And, you know, and when he does make a mistake, he wants to go for the throat even more so after that. So I think mixing in some more easy buttons, again, it could be little things. It could be a quick, you know, smoke screen. It could be Again, the run game, I think, is the biggest one. Like, if you allow Josh Allen to live in a world where he's consistently consistently looking at second and five or second and four, the world is kind of your oyster. And then if you're building that consistently and then you go into that run look on first down and a safety cheats down and you've got single high, all of a sudden you check to, you know, some kind of play action pass and you hit maybe, you know, Y cross or something to Kincaid or Knox or attack vertically, the world kind of becomes your oyster based on the personnel that they have and then being able to live in the run and the pass that's tremendous. And again, if you, if you need to look at what that could look like, granted the offenses are different, but look at the Eagles last year, look at the chiefs last year, especially for the chiefs. If you're a bills fan, right? What happened when Mahomes went down against the Jags, Chad Henney goes in and most people are probably like, Oh, they're done. And the chiefs are like, no, we're just going to run the ball. 
because we have a really good run game. And then what happened in the Super Bowl? Mahomes tweaks his ankle again. And it's like, oh, the Eagles are going to get after him now. And the Chiefs are like, no, we're, we're just going to run the ball. Like, that's it. it it's, a, it's a really nice piece for a big spread offense if they can also run the ball. And think about how many, again, I hate to bring it back to the Chiefs again, but think of how much that you hate that as a Bills fan. You're like, oh, of course, they got Mahomes and Kelsey, and now they can run the ball. This sucks. That's what you want teams to say about the Bills. So it starts with the run game piece, and then really everything starts to connect from there for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and this is on the defensive side of the ball now with McDermott taking over for Frazier's defensive coordinator call duties. Um, what would you do differently from maybe what you've seen the last seven seasons or so um, from Frazier that you would do differently if you were McDermott taking over this job on defense? I think more matchup specific game plans. I think what the Bills defense has been these past several years and honestly, kind of rightfully so, the Bills have been one of the best defenses in the NFL consistently under Leslie Frazier, so I get like the system and the schemes that they've been running, but I think the Bills' defense the past several years has been more of, this is who we are, go ahead and try and beat us. And when you get to the playoffs, your entire season is on tape. The sample size is there, so everybody knows who you are, they know your tendencies, they know your likes, your dislikes, your strengths, your weaknesses, and when you're going against somebody who has everything that you are, on tape and in data, it becomes a little harder to play that way, let alone when you're also coming up against the Bengals or the Chiefs or these high-powered, high-structured teams that know how to pick you apart and they have access to all of everything that you are. So I think less of that, here's who we are, try and beat us, and more of we're going to be whoever we need to be this week in order to beat you. So one of the things I say on my show all the time is in order to win a Super Bowl, like you you need to play rock, paper, scissors, and you need to be able to throw rock, paper, and scissors whenever you need to. If you throw a great rock, that's awesome. But you're not only you're not always going up against somebody who's throwing scissors. What happens if you go up against somebody who throws paper? You got to be able to pivot and you got to be able to throw scissors. Or somebody else throws a great rock and then you're just rock against rock and I don't know if yours is strong enough. You know it'd be sweet if you could just pivot to paper and cover rock. Boom. So I think more of that again, maybe it's a more more man coverage week this week heavy. Maybe it's more blitzing. Maybe it's more bracket coverages. They and they dabbled with some of this right or and some of these game plan specific things against Kansas City in the regular season last year. They busted out that odd mirror front with the three down lineman and then Matt Milano as kind of that aggressive spy and Von Miller was knifing in to get Mahomes off the spot and Milano would attack. So it was almost kind of like a three man. It was also kind of like a four man rush, even though you only had three down. Then they were pairing it with combo coverages on the back end where it was man on one side and zone on another. They also paired it with some dime personnel looks, right? The interception against Mahomes that ended the game in the regular season, it's three defensive linemen, one linebacker with Matt Milano, and then it's six DBs out there for you. Um, actually by even throwing off the numbers there. Um, yeah, but there's, it's, it's a dime look and they're running that odd mirror package. That was a purposefully designed piece for the Kansas city chiefs. And I don't think you got that enough consistently. I think things ebbed and flowed and was more like, Hey, you know, we've got a good defensive line. We're just going to rush four and play quarters or cover two behind it. And we'll disguise coverage and rotate some things. Um, but again, I, I think the best way to sum it up is less of this is who we are. Go ahead, try and beat us. And more of, nah, we're going to change who we are week to week based on what you suck at. And we're going to attack that over and over and over again. And that would make sense for them to do. By the way, I love that answer. It would be nice if they went to that sort of 
we have a game plan for every specific opponent based on their strengths. And then if it doesn't work, if it, for some reason they miscalculated or the team was ready for it, whatever, then go back to what you're good at. Then go back to your strengths, like as a fallback, as a, okay, this isn't working. Let's go back to what we're good at, or as opposed to, or potentially another game plan that was also very good. That's maybe not, but yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. And they, and they will, and they will have their tools in the bag, right? They do exactly your point. Like if the game plan's not working, it's like, all right, cool. You know, we know we can get pressure with four and we're going to play coverage behind it. We're going to retreat and go back to that. That's fine. Um, but I think more, and this isn't to say that I don't want people thinking like they just came in every week with the same generic game plan and weren't, you know, attacking opponents in specific ways. But I think a lot of the defense was, we have Von Miller and a good defensive line. We're just going to rush four and we're going to play a variety of coverages on the back end, which they did, right? They play quarters and cover two, cover one, cover three, and they'd mix some things up from time to time. Um, but you really kind of knew what you were going to get from the Bills defense. The thing was they just played it so well. Um, but once Von Miller went down, then it became a little easier for offenses to be like, Ooh, well, you're not going to pressure us with four now. So now we just need our quarterback to sit back there and read the coverage, which he can do because now he has enough time and here we go. And I want to limit that as much as possible with just more, more tweaks, more attack minded. Um, and it doesn't have to be a ton, right? Like they don't have to shift their entire identity and philosophy because who they are has largely worked, but come playoff time, they need more of that matchup specific piece, like that odd mirror package they used in Kansas city last year. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you might've alluded to this. This is the last question, by the way, thank you so much for the time and everything, but the biggest hurdle for this team to take that last step and make it to the Super Bowl, much less win it to make it, possibly win it. It might have been something you've already mentioned. What do you think is that last hurdle that they need to get over to, to make that step? It's it's somewhat team specific with the teams are going to come up against, but it really ties into just being better with playoff game plans and matchup specific pieces. When you're looking at the top teams in the AFC, we'll start with the Chiefs and we'll start with the Bengals. You are going up against you know, with the Chiefs, Andy Reid on offense, Steve Spagnuolo on defense. You're going up against two tremendous game plan coaches. The Chiefs defenses every year, right? If we just look at the defense, because everybody knows the offense is tremendous and what Andy Reid is. But the Chiefs defense over like the years isn't really a great defense in the regular season. But you know what they are? Come playoff time, they are a problem to deal with. Steve Spagnuolo knows how to confuse you. He knows how to attack you. If he gets you into third and medium or third and long, you're going to get some crazy designer pressure or coverage that you do not know how to guard against. Like, you know, you're going to get a a coach who has a tremendous game plan. The Bengals are in that world now too. Lou Anarumo had a tremendous game plan against the Bills last year in the division round. He had the same thing the year before against the Chiefs. He is now widely known as a tremendous, like, big game defensive coordinator and just a good matchup coordinator in general. Like, it's a good, if you want to know what an offense is good at, watch them play the Cincinnati Bengals and watch the Bengals defense and see what they do because what they do will tell you what they think that offense is good at and what they think that offense sucks at. And based on that, that's how they're going to attack. And we saw what they did to the Bills. They changed a bunch of coverages. They attacked Spencer Brown. They had delayed pressures and simulated pressures. They lined up speed edge rushers on the interior against Roger Saffold. It was a very curated game plan based on the schematic and or personnel weaknesses that the Bills had. Um, So, and you're looking at that piece, and I think you just start with those two teams, and it's a good microcosm and representation of, you know, when when everything's on the line come playoff time, they've got coordinators and they've got coaches that are tremendous at putting a tailor-made game plan together 
to attack an opponent. And I think the Bills, last year I didn't think they had the talent necessarily on the roster to compete with the big boys when it came down, especially when you looked at the teams that were in the Final Four and the championship games. But this year I think there's a little more teeth to the roster and the lineup from an overall depth perspective, a little more B and B plus and potentially even A minus talent on the roster now. So I think they can compete in that regard. I think the last hurdle is really just having that matchup specific game plan that you know will work against an Andy Reid, against Steve Spagnolo, against um Luana Rumo, against even you know what Zach Taylor is putting together on the offense and what Joe Burrow does. Like because again, come playoff time, you're playing the best of the best, the elite of the elite. You need to be on point with your execution, but your game plan has to be on point as well. And I don't think the Bills have been horrible with their game plans. They just haven't been up to snuff with the best of the best the past couple of years. They have been championship caliber on that on that yeah, you can have the the sure. best players uh, in the league, but if you're not game planning as well as the other coaches are, yeah, yeah, good point, good point. And that's, that's a tough piece because again, they're like they're like Andy Reid is great for a reason, and even Andy Reid ran into this right. If you were having this conversation six or seven years ago, everybody was going to tell you that Andy Reid sucks in the big game and he can't accomplish anything. Like ask an Eagles fan what they think of Andy Reid, right? Like oh. Every time it comes to the big moment, he chokes, he sucks. Or ask a Chiefs fan, like, yeah, we're good enough to get to the wild card with Alex Smith, but we get to the playoffs and we suck. Like, you're you're not clutch until suddenly you are. Like, things can change in the blink of an eye. Like, it's not this insurmountable piece. And come playoffs, a lot of it, too, is the NFL playoff structure, right? It's one game. If you have a bad game plan for a quarter or a half, it could sink your entire ship. And if it sinks your ship that week, you're done. There is no, uh, you know what, we'll adjust and we'll get them next week because it's a best of seven series. No, if you have one bad day, one bad game, you're done. So you can't afford to have any leaks in the ship. And if you do, and they're too big and they get exploited, it's one and done and you're out. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Well put. Well, Anthony, I want to thank you again for coming on, man. Just like last year, it was, it was a tremendous discussion. Um, appreciate you taking the time. They can find all of your work on cover one on their YouTube channel, on the podcast channel, anywhere you listen to podcasts, they can find you on disguise coverage, which is your own specific podcast, but mm-hmm. you also co-host the film room, um, with Eric. And, uh, it, I mean, this is all really cool stuff. Um, I didn't bring up the Christmas tree. Um, this isn't a YouTube <laughs> video, but you do have the Christmas tree going on in the background, which I love. I see it on your YouTube videos. I knew you, I didn't say so I switched that up instead of talking about blueberries this year, last year I talked about the Christmas tree, but I'm glad it's yeah. still, it's still going strong. You will never get rid of that. I'm sure. Never, <laughs> never. It'll be, it will always be a fixture of the show. Absolutely. <laughs> I appreciate the shout out for it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, where else can they find you? I mean, they can find you on social media, everything else. Where can they find all of your work and everything else that you do? So find me on Twitter at pro underscore underscore ant. That's pro two underscores a n t. Super active with the Twitter, whether it's posting advanced metrics or film clips or schematic or structural pieces, player evaluation stuff, um, anything and everything. Obviously, a ton on the Bills, but a lot just league wide in general from a football. Um, scheme and just talking ball perspective. And then, yeah, you hit it. Um, I host Sky's coverage live every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, that is live on YouTube again at 9 p.m. Eastern, and then it gets uploaded right to the podcasting apps and platforms right after that. And then I'm also the co-host of the Cover One Film Room, which is live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube. That obviously gets uploaded to the podcasting apps and platforms as well. Um, if you're depending on when you're listening to this, there is no disguise coverage for the next several Tuesdays um, because disguise coverage will be a, a special post game edition after the three preseason games. Um, I'll be doing a post game piece like I have the past several years. And uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell.
Very cool. Very cool. Folks should definitely check you out um, as I have like, and, and no joke, like, I mean, I follow a lot of uh, folks on Twitter, like from cover one, especially, um, and you're one of the best followers, especially, you know, during the season and training camp specifically, like I'm trying to, I try to retweet out everything I can from our uh, Twitter account, just because it is, uh, it's such good insight. And uh, one of the things I always appreciate about you besides your analytics and, your, and the way that you, uh, you, you look at things and the way that you, you know, schematically like break things down is that you also have a sense of humor too, which isn't oh, not, yeah. not saying it's not common in cover one or just in general, but it's also like welcome because our podcast is, although we're fans, we don't have the film knowledge. Like we try to keep it lighthearted. We try to mm-hmm. like, we're friends talking about the bills, you know, our favorite team. Yeah. Um, but that's why I like having you on specifically. Um, uh, so this has been, a, and like I said, pro underscore underscore. And we were talking about this before the uh, podcast, two underscores, uh, two, two underscores, yeah. make sure. And if anything, if you, ever wonder why it should be underscoring the fact that he's a pro he was he was writing down answers to questions <laughs> before before we actually started recording i mean he was ready for it so pro and then i realized later how dumb that was that i mentioned it to you earlier because you're anthony prohaska the pro is the prohaska not the fact that you're a pro um but even if so i love the hubris i love the hubris <laughs> that's why so appreciate you coming on man again thanks this is it was as, as fun as it was last year appreciate it man no, I appreciate you. Um, like I said last year, like anytime you want me, you got me. I, I enjoyed my time with you last year. I enjoyed my time with you now, you know, both online here doing the show and then offline where we were kind of just chopping it up before we went live. So yeah, again, I appreciate you reaching out and having me and working with my schedule and finding the time that worked for both of us. And then just, yeah, all the, all the kind words. Um, I, I appreciate that tremendously in the recognition. So thank you very much for having me and for being a good dude. And uh, I had a blast. So the Bills just released their first depth chart of the season of the preseason I should say and I just wanted to give a couple of quick notes on that some things I noticed that I thought were kind of interesting Um, the first thing is a lot of the training camp battles and competitions we've been talking about for the last few weeks uh, they're about as clear as mud as always Uh, we talk about wide receiver three the slot wide receiver it's be it's between Deontay Hardy and Khalil Shakir on their depth chart the Bills actually put a lot of slashes for the training camp competition. So instead of just saying it's Deontay Hardy as a slot wide receiver, they put Deontay Hardy slash Khalil Shakir. Now, do you think that the name, the first name, is the name of the person who has a leg up? I think it's possible. I think that's why they listed it that way. Maybe it was by alphabetical order. <laughs> I think it's very possible. It was actually looking at all of these competitions. It's all by alphabetical order. So most likely that way. Okay. All right. Well, I just decided that just now. Um, <laughs> so uh, slot wide receiver, wide receiver three is be- between Hardy and Shakir, which we knew. Middle linebacker, Terrell Bernard, Tyrell Dodson, the same. Nothing new there. Cornerback uh, two is between Benford, Elam, and Dean Jackson. Again, nothing new. But what is interesting, one of the competitions that we've kind of been talking about, maybe not as major as middle linebacker, cornerback two, slot wide receiver, wide receiver three, um, is right guard. Ryan Bates is listed as the starter at right guard. Osiris Torrance is second string as of now. So that is noteworthy. That is noteworthy. I did not necessarily think that it would be that way. I thought they might do a Bates slash Torrance sort of thing. They are not. They're giving the nod to the veteran, which makes sense. I mean, unless Osiris Torrance comes out of the gate as a complete stud or they have nobody that they can start 
in place of him, then that would make sense for Torrance to get the nod or at least have it be a competition. But Bates has experience. They can rely on Bates. They know what they have in him. And when it comes to protecting your franchise quarterback, if you're worried at all about tackle between Spencer Brown, as Anthony mentioned, or maybe even Deion Dawkins, you definitely don't want to put his uh, life in the hands of a, of a rookie guard that you're not 100% sure that you want to start at. Even if it's you know 80%, like let's say you're you're convinced 8 out of 10 for both Bates and Torrance. Like you, they each have their own strengths, but you're not 100% sure one way or the other of either of them. They both, then you're going to stick with the guy who's been there before. You're going to stick with the guy with experience that you can count on. And unless he gets injured or proves otherwise, you're going to run with Bates as long as you can. So, so I'm not, I'm kind of surprised, but then again, I'm not really surprised. I mean, it's not the same as cornerback, too. If you lose, if you put, uh, Kair Elam in instead of Christian Benford or Dane Jackson, like that doesn't ruin your season. If you become a turnstile by mistake because you weren't ready for Quinn and Williams, you know, to bull rush you through the gut and take down Josh Allen's knees, then your whole season's gone. So it's much more important <laughs> that you have the veteran that even as much as my co-host John loves Osiris Torrance, which I love as well, I just don't think he's necessarily ready. Again, that was a luxury pick in the draft. That was a guy that we didn't have to take, but he fell so far and he was so talented, the Bills just couldn't pass him up and good on them because it was not a position of need specifically in this, uh, a position of need, but I mean, great depth, especially when you're protecting your franchise quarterback is always a good thing. So really excited to see what he's going to be showing from here on out. Um, maybe he's just not ready for week one, okay? So we'll see. We'll see. There's still two more preseason games after this one that he could potentially take over the starting job. Um, and the other the other thing I noticed through looking at this depth chart, one of the few things that kind of comes off as an interesting item to note is that Puna Ford, the defensive tackle that was signed after the draft, sometimes I wondered, well, is it going to be Puna Ford starting or is it going to be Daquan Jones? I think I'm going to give the nod to Daquan Jones because of his experience, because he played really well. But Puna Ford potentially could be a better prospect. Uh, we'll see a defensive tackle. Uh, I was figuring it was going to be 1-2, probably Daquan Jones, Puna Ford. Puna Ford's lifted, listed third on the depth chart at defensive tackle. So it's Daquan Jones at the one tech. First string, Tim Settle as a second string, and at the third string is Puna Ford. So I found that very interesting. They're giving the nod to Tim Settle, a guy who's been there a little bit longer. Maybe that's as a sign of respect to Tim Settle because he's been there longer than Puna Ford. Puna Ford's only been here a couple months, and Tim Settle went through a whole season and a whole two whole off seasons. I don't know. We'll see, but that, I just thought that that was interesting of note. So I will be at the Bills game, at the Bills-Colts game this weekend. It is a kids' day game, so this is the first game I'm bringing my children to. I have a 7-year-old and a 4-year-old, so we'll see how long that lasts. I'm hoping to stay through at least the third quarter, but promise probably won't get that. But I'll watch. I'll finish the game later on NFL Plus, and we'll cover that uh, game in full. Any surprises, anything to note from that game on Sunday nights. Well, it's going to be, we record Sunday night, but it's going to be Monday at noon's podcast. So be sure to check that episode out for Circling the Wagons. Again, I want to thank Anthony. He is uh, a really fun guy to talk to. Um, there are several, I mean, I've probably talked to 50 or 60 different media personalities or, or content creators. Um, and 
I'm lucky to have a few on several times, not just once. And he was one of those that I was definitely looking forward to. Um, just, a, just a really fun guy, super knowledgeable. I mean, you hear him. You could listen to this podcast three or four times and finally grasp all the knowledge that he crammed into it. So one of the things I like, I appreciate people that have that sort of knowledge, have a good sense of humor, just like Bruce Nolan, like that just understand you know, all sorts of the game and, and can add that and uh, are just personable, fun, great people. So thank you again to Anthony. Please check out all his work on Cover One, on their podcast network, on their YouTube channel, on his own YouTube channel, Disguise Coverage, The Film Room, all that fun stuff. Please check out his work. And for me, Nate, go Bills, and we'll talk to you guys after the Bills-Colts preseason game. Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. Yeah. Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. Yeah. Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. Uh. It's the Buffalo Bills, eh? It's the Buffalo Bills, eh? Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. Josh Allen, Steph Diggs, Shaq Lawson, who's stopping us? No. Trey Edmonds, Ed Oliver, Jordan Phillips, who blocking us? No. I don't see nobody stopping us. No. Number one, no one on top uh. of us. What they gonna do in Matt Malone? Coming with the blitz off the edge Don't you throw it in the air Cause Trey White and Micah Hyde will intercept Von Miller getting double team Now the team getting easy sacks Russo with the double moves Coming straight for the quarterback Take him down, take him down McDermott clapping on the sidelines And the crowd going crazy Mafia, it's our time Josh Allen, it's your time It's the Mafia, yeah Sunday, one Bills drive Mafia, where you at? Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. 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 It's the Buffalo Bills, eh? It's the Buffalo Bills, eh? Buffalo, Buffalo. Buffalo, it's the mafia. Josh Allen, Steph Diggs, Shaq Lawson, who's stopping us? Trey Edmonds, Ed Oliver, Jordan Phillips, who blocking us? I don't see nobody stopping us. Number one, no one on top of us. Mitch Moore snapped to Josh Allen, looking down the field, see no one open, so he scrambled right. He sees somebody open, but he off balance, so he gotta be focused. Dawkins with the block, Allen with the shock, 70 yards. Will it be called Gabe Davis or Jay Crowder? Down the field, past the whole roster, that Steph Diggs make it so easy. Touchdown, high my feel rocking every Sunday. Got a hangover on every Monday. Get your bass kicked, you know we winning. Josh Allen passing, who gon' pass us? With Devin and Cook, you know we great. If you're not a Bills fan, we don't relate. Nah. Buffalo, 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 it's the mafia. Josh Allen, Steph Diggs, Don Brown, who's stopping us? Trey Edmonds, Ed Oliver, Jordan Phillips, who blocking us? No one. Thank you for listening to the Circling the Wagons podcast. Download and subscribe to us in your favorite podcast service. Email us at ctwpod at gmail.com. That's Charlie Tango Whiskey Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ctwpod. And most importantly, go Bills! Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills, mate. <laughs>